Welcome to Science Talk, the more or less weekly podcast of Scientific American, hosted on April 20th, 2010. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast... You would write with one chemical and then have to apply a second chemical, which then would make the message appear. That's John Nakey, author of the new book, Invisible Ink, Spycraft of the American Revolution. He spoke last month at the famous Revolutionary War hangout, the Francis Tavern, in Lower Manhattan. And we'll hear an edited version of his talk. Plus, we'll test your knowledge of some recent science in the news. John Nagy is a founding father himself, a founder of the American Revolution Roundtable of Philadelphia. He's written numerous books about the war. And since spying involves some technology and science, I thought it would be fun to hear about it in our venue. Nagy begins with a specific case about a captured document written in ciphers and symbols. Then he talks in more general terms about codes and ciphers, the chemistry employed to send messages in invisible ink, and some of the psychology involved in fooling your enemy during war. The American Revolution begins up in Boston after the battles of Concord and Lexington. The American army surrounds the British who are under a virtual siege. The British have no one on staff who really is an expert in ciphers and codes. And they have no system actually in place to send coded messages to their operations in Canada or even here in New York. American General George Washington takes command of the troops at Cambridge. And again, on the American side, there is nobody in charge of cryptology. Now, what you do have a situation where merchants are not totally ignorant of codes and ciphers. When they deal with their agents in London, they had a tendency to use a very cryptic cipher system to tell their agents what price to sell at and so on. And uh, so if their messages were intercepted, their mail, because in the 18th century you had no privacy in the mails, you put it in the mail, it was public information, and you can be pretty much be assured that somebody was going to read it along the way. Now, one of the situations... You have Dr. Benjamin Church, who is the Surgeon General of the Continental Army. The only problem is Dr. Church is a British spy. He's been on the British payroll since at least 1772. And so while he is running the American hospitals, he's sending in information to British generals in Boston. He wasn't able to send his mail directly into Boston. It had to go down to uh, Newport. So what he did is he sent his mistress, who was a prostitute in Boston, down to Newport to one of her former clients to get the message to the British captain of the vessel. She delivers the message to him. He promises to take it on board ship, sees a message that's all in ciphers and symbols, and so he decides not to do it, takes the document, goes to the governor's, of Rhode Island, who then sends him up to American General Green, who, being a merchant, knows that it's an encoded message. The Americans put two teams to decipher the message, and they both, uh, using frequency analysis, in other words, which letters appear the most common, you then back it out. The most common letter in English is the letter E. So you would start with figuring out what appears the most times, and that is the letter E. And then you work down from there. They come up with the exact same translation, both of them, and that's the code that they wrote down 
that he had used. Now, the difference between a cipher and a code, everybody has a tendency to misuse the terms. A cipher is when a character or a letter represents another character or letter. In other words, A is equal to 1, or delta, using a symbol, is equal to the letter K or something similar. A code is when a character represents an entire word, and usually you're going to need a code book to identify what the codes are because you're going to be using so many. Generally, you're not going to be able to keep track of them in your head. One of the things we need to realize is the alphabet in the 18th century is not our alphabet. Okay, It is not identical. In the 18th century, the letters I and J are the exact same letter. There is no difference between the two. The letters U and V are the same letter. So if I gave you the letters I-V-L-Y, today it would look strange. In the 18th century, they would automatically make the change and adjust it and immediately know that what I meant was July. And shorthand writing is another form of codes and ciphers. And the earliest book that I found on shorthand dates to 1586. So it was well known. Joseph Stansbury's cipher, very simple. It's A is equal to Z, B is equal to A. It's a one-letter shift. Joseph Stansbury is the person in Philadelphia who received the messages from Benedict Arnold wrote them into cipher and codes, and they were brought across New Jersey by two different methods, brought here to New York. They were given to the Reverend Jonathan O'Dell, who then decoded the messages and then turned them into British headquarters uh, right here at 1 Broadway. They also used book codes. It is very important that the two people sending and uh, coding and decoding the messages are using the same edition. Otherwise, you find out You put down the word balloon, and they're reading it as baloney. The first number is usually the page, the second number is the line, and the third number is the word. So 4598 would mean to go to page 45, to go down to line 9, go over to word 8, and that would be your word, which obviously you've got to have the same book. Dictionary codes, very popular, used by all sides. Uh, a dictionary, the most common one used was Entik's New Spelling Dictionary. It has a list of words, alphabetical order, two columns, and you have just about every word that you could possibly want. What they would do is they would put a dot over the number to indicate whether it was the first column or the second column. They had a tendency when it was the first column to just ignore the dot. They would also do things like add 20 to the page or 7 or what have you. There is also an instance where they page the book backwards to try and and keep it hidden. Pig pen cipher, we would call it like a tic-tac-toe board. Uh, They called it a pig pen. You would place the letters in each one of the quadrants, and the two sides, the sender and the receiver, had to agree which letters are going where. Okay, so as long as you understood the positioning of the letters in the different slots, you were able to transcribe a message. So if you see in the first upper left quadrant the letters A, B, C, if you drew just the upper left quadrant without putting anything in it, it would indicate the letter A. If you drew the quadrant and put one dot, it would indicate the letter B. 
the upper left quadrant, with two dots would be the letter C, and so on. Now, all sides wound up using this. The Americans, the British, the French. There's even a Hessian diary that's partially written in a pig pen cipher. Uh, the pig pen cipher, by the way, is used up through the American Civil War. The next thing is called the Cardano Grill, or we would call it more of a mask. The sections where the squiggles, those would be cutouts in the page. So you, how you would use this is you would put the mask on the paper, put your secret message in the cutout holes, take the mask off, and then write the rest of the message around it. They also use masks with a hidden center. We would call it a uh, hourglass mask in the 18th century. They called it a dumbbell mask. Here is a letter written with a hidden center. Here's the actual hidden message. Okay, And what the message says uh, is that Sir um, William Howe has gone to the Chesapeake. It was sent by Henry Clinton, General Henry Clinton, up to General Burgoyne telling him that Howe was not coming up the Hudson to help him. He's gone to attack Philadelphia. Invisible ink, anything that's mildly acidic will work, whether it be milk, lemon juice, grapefruit juice. Uh, during World War II, they actually used urine. Anything that will weaken the fibers of the paper. What happens is that the fibers, once weakened, when you bring it next to heat, the weakened fibers will darken first. The only thing you have to remember is to take it away from the heat or the whole document goes brown. But anything that will weaken the fibers will work in doing it. I'm sure some of you, when you were younger, tried writing with milk or lemon juice, and you put it next to a light bulb or what have you, and it does work. They also had, in the 18th century, three different methods uh, that tells you of chemical reactions where you would write with one chemical and then have to apply a second chemical, which then would make the message appear. Applying heat to the that chemical would have no effect and would not make it visible. Washington's deceptions. Now, the one thing I do have to say about Washington, for somebody who never told a lie, he certainly stretched the truth an awful lot. <laughs> he also did a thing called the troop multiplication. At Morristown, When after the battles of Trenton and Princeton, the American army goes up and encamps at Morristown. And while there, normally you would put most of your troops, uh, cluster them in houses, try and keep as many together as you could. Washington went the exact opposite way. He would put one or two people, soldiers, in a house so that the area that his troops had to occupy was much greater than the amount of troops he had. So the spies are reporting back to British headquarters here in New York that Washington's army extends over such a great area, so they're reporting back that he has three and four times more soldiers than he actually has. To me, one of the best ones occurs by General Putnam at Princeton, New Jersey. Again, after the battles of Trenton and Princeton, Putnam is there with 50 men. You have the British Army in New Brunswick, and the rest of the American Army is at Morristown. So the bulk of the British Army could come down and squash him in an instant if they wanted to. There is a British officer who uh, was uh, wounded very badly at the Battle of Princeton, was not expected to live, asked for permission to have a British officer come out of New Brunswick, take his last will and testament. 
Putnam agreed, but insisted it had to be done at night. What Putnam did is, in all the empty houses, he put candles to make them look like they were occupied. He then had his 50 soldiers march past the house where the last will and testament was being taken, sometimes one, two at a time, sometimes six at a time, sometimes a dozen, sometimes all 50. When the British officer goes back to New Brunswick, he reports that Putnam is at Princeton with 4,000 soldiers. Uh, fake reports for spies. Washington liked to make up fake reports and send them in to British headquarters here in New York. Uh, he did so well that after the Battle of Brandywine in Pennsylvania, the British Army captured an original American report, but were absolutely convinced it was fake. <laughs> because they were getting so many fake reports, they refused to believe it. Now, another one is what Washington's deception was that uh, he needed to steal a march in 1781 to move the American army and the French army from North Jersey and uh, basically Westchester and Putnam counties past the British, across the Delaware River, and eventually down to Yorktown to hook up with Lafayette, down there and attacked uh, Cornwallis. So what Washington uses, it's called the Deception Battle Plan. And the Deception Battle Plan is also used in World War II for the landing at Normandy. It's also used in Desert Storm by General Schwarzkopf to do an end around on the uh, Republican Guard. They use Washington's plan. First thing you need is a clear objective, and the clear objective was he needed to steal a march across New Jersey by stealth without being attacked by the British who were located in New York and in Staten Island. You have to know the enemy's assumptions. Washington originally was planning to attack New York with the French. The British in New York believed that, and so what you have to do is that once you know what the enemy believes, you then have to reinforce their belief that that is what you're going to do. So the next thing would be method selection, the options. One of the things that he did is since they were using the French army, and the French army, a bulk of their diet is bread, he had brick ovens being uh, built, and they were built at Chatham, New Jersey. He issued orders for the preparation of building ovens at the Highlands, uh, right near Sandy Hook. And he also was issuing orders for supplies to be brought to the French ovens at the Highlands once the French troops arrive. But since the French troops were never going there, he could write as many orders as he wants because none of these contracts would ever take place. The other thing that he did is he had troops assigned uh, to go to Perth Amboy, and they went down uh, by the water's edge. He wanted the British to observe them collecting bricks. As the ovens in Chatham were being built, Washington is able to steal the march, but what he does is he has uh, 30 boats put on carriages that are brought to Springfield, New Jersey, for the anticipated uh, attack on Staten Island. There would be no other reason to bring the boats there because they weren't going to Virginia. So he's gone and convinced the British that there's going to be an attack on Staten Island. The eventual uh, result is the fact that his army... And the French army were able to move across New Jersey without being attacked. And as I'm sure most of you are aware, they make it down to 
Virginia and Cornwallis surrenders at Yorktown. That gives you pretty much of a run-through on the spy craft that was used during the American Revolution. Uh, there's many more codes and ciphers uh, that are in the book, and at this point, um, I would like to open it up to some questions, and hopefully I have some answers. Uh, we have one back there. Are any of the ciphers still used today in, by the government? And if not, what other sorts of technology have like taken over, you know, hit, hiding secrets and things? Computers. Like that? Computers. Okay. Actually, you can use your computer and encode messages far superior than what was used in the American Revolution. Computers today design the codes, and where I talked about a one-letter shift, that's one transaction. They would then take the one-letter shift, which actually they would use different combinations, and then make multiple shifts. And if you get into reading about the Enigma machine and the Japanese purple codes, you'll see that they go into multiple layers of transcriptions. And the only way to decode this stuff is using a computer. You really need to be a mathematician to today to be doing codes and ciphers at that level. There's also one of the things I didn't mention that we actually used here in New York uh, that was used at One Broadway was a thing called the Language of Flowers. There was a young girl who was at Putnam's headquarters. Up on the top of One Broadway was a widow's watch, and she would go up there and observe the American troops and then come down and draw paintings, You draw paintings of flowers. Uh, the last real book written on the subject is about 1835, but by using flowers, you could t give a description as to how many troops were there, whether they were going to be just amassed on the border, whether they were going to attack. There is one individual who claims that in a bouquet of flowers, he could put the equivalent of eight pages of text. And by the way, you hang spies, you normally don't shoot them. Only a gentleman is shot in the 18th century. A spy is not a gentleman. So a spy is not shot, which is why Andre was hung. He asked to be shot, which would indicate he was a gentleman, and if he was a gentleman, he couldn't have been a spy, and they shouldn't be executing him. So they had to hang him. They could not shoot him. It's 18th century etiquette. <laughs> Do you have any specifics on the, the chemistry that was used in some of the hidden messages that's more sophisticated than the vinegar or lemon juice and add heat and and would they actually then have something else on the page that they could wash off uh one of the formulas uses oak gall uh which is not chemically available today the americans um their original supply came from sir james jay uh in london who claims to have invented it although it was a the formula was known by the british for a hundred years before so he probably may have taken a liberal license in claiming he invented it or he may have tweaked it a bit. The Americans later on set up, uh, John Jay sets up, his brother, sets up a laboratory up around Peekskill, New York to manufacture the uh, agent and reagent that are used. Uh, so at, once the laboratory is actually established, the Americans have a, a plentiful supply. The Ogall powder at the time was available uh, through any medical supply. Uh, so any place that there was a surgery, they would have had it.
The J chemical compound is also known as sympathetic stain or white ink. And you would write with it between the lines of another document, or in the margins, or on the backs of pages that included other writing. John Jay was one of the authors of a series of documents not written in invisible ink, the Federalist Papers. He later became the first Chief Justice of the United States. Now, you just heard my edit of John Nagy's talk, which included just the parts that I thought were most relevant to the scientifically interested listener. Nagy also spent considerable time discussing things like dead drops, which is how Morgan Freeman knows how to find Tim Robbins at the end of Shawshank, by the way, and messages hidden in buttons and balls of yarn, things like that. C-SPAN was also there when Nagy spoke, and you can access the full 52-minute talk in their archives. I created a shortened URL for you, snipurl.com slash V as in Victor, N as in Nancy, H-Y-8. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, but only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, the legislature in Wisconsin has declared the official state colors to be black and white, an homage to dairy cattle. Story two, physicist Roy Glauber had his Nobel Prize stolen from his home. Story three, insurance companies have almost $2 billion invested in fast food companies. And story four, putting up a sign in a building extolling the virtues of taking the stairs and an arrow showing where the staircase is increased stair use by 34%. And time's up. Story four is true. Stair use went up 34% after the appearance of the signs showing where the stairs were and noting that climbing the stairs burned lots more calories than taking the elevator. The study appeared in the Journal of Physical Activity and Health. Story three is true. Health and life insurance companies have $1.88 billion invested in the top five publicly traded fast food chains. That's according to a study in the American Journal of Public Health. And insurance companies have more than twice that much money invested in tobacco companies. For more, see Catherine Harmon's April 15th article on our website called Health Insurers Make Big Bucks from Big Macs. And story two is true. Glauber's Nobel Prize was stolen and has not yet been found, although a suspect is in custody. Because while he was in Glauber's house, the alleged thief left behind a supermarket receipt that included his food stamp number, which the cops used to track him down. As the local police chief said, Clearly, the victim and the alleged perpetrator in this case are on opposite ends of the IQ spectrum. All of which means that story one about Wisconsin making black and white the official state colors to honor dairy cows is totally bogus. But what is true is that the Wisconsin legislature has announced the designation of an official state microbe. And the winner is Lactococcus lactis because you can't make cheddar cheese without it. The representative who came up with the bill noted that, quote, this microbe is really a very hard worker, end quote. Lactococcus also helps in the production of Colby and Monterey Jack. Well, that's it for this episode. Get your science news at www.scientificamerican.com. 
where you can read Larry Greenmeyer's observations blog item called Who Needs High Speed Broadband? And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet every time a new article hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam, S-C-I-A-M. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Huzzah, 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 for free America.